0: Great to be with you this morning and to be able to open the scriptures again together. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. We're going to get there in just a couple minutes. Uh, But as we begin today... um, I don't know if you've maybe heard this or seen this throughout your news media, maybe through text messages you've received and such, but, but there's like an election cycle going on. And I don't know about you, but I've received so many text messages from people I don't know telling me what I should do about certain things. Um, I hope that that has not been the same for you, but I, I trust it probably has. Um, As we go into this year, I'm not going to talk about politics this morning, but I am going to talk about something that is near and dear to the heart of God, and that is the issue of life. Um, A couple years ago, our church elders, um, we, we clarified a statement, a position statement on the sanctity of life. And here's what it reads. It reads, Each human being is created in the image of God, Genesis 127. As such, even in our fallen state, human beings have an intrinsic value that is greater than the animals, Genesis 9. This unique value of human life begins at conception, Psalm 139, and extends to its natural end, Isaiah 46. As a result, we seek to protect others from harm. I can't read that word. We seek to protect others from harm, whether from abortion, euthanasia, human trafficking, or other abuses. You probably already know this, but in our current election cycle, there's a proposal, uh, proposal number three, that that goes directly against these values of the scripture. And this morning, I, I wanna just suggest three things to us as a people of God. Number one, we need to value life. We need to value life. We need to pray for the lives of unborn, for the lives of people in whatever stage of life, even down to, I love how we clarify this, abortion, youth in Asia, human trafficking, and other abuses, because the abuses upon life are not just on those in the womb. They're on those across the spectrum. We want to be people who stand for life, and we are called to be people of prayer, who pray that God would reveal himself to people in our nation, that God would turn the hearts of our nation towards him, that we might seek his will, that we might seek to value people made in his image. And so as we approach this, I encourage and call us as a church to be praying, especially over these next few weeks, as we, um, as a state, have this opportunity to vote on this. I also want to uh, encourage you to be well-informed. Um, I have a slide right here, um, going from my notes. I have a slide right here of resources for learning. This week I went and I actually read... All of proposal three on the Michigan.gov website. There's a couple of copies that I have of that back there at the coffee area for you if you want to grab one. I have like the whole thing, which is 13 pages um, back in front. That's all the proposals, but I also have just segmented out and printed off a few copies of proposal three. I encourage you if you have not written or read it yet, go ahead and read this bill. Uh, read all of what it, um, all of what it entails um, because it's very, very, um, it's very dark. It's very dark in a spiritual way against life. read that. If you need some other resources, some that I would suggest to you are righttolife.org. There's actually some newspapers back there, also at the coffee station. Uh, by Right to Life that give you some uh, material on that. You could also go to their website. They've got great stuff there. Another helpful resource that I have found helpful is a place called Breakpoint. Breakpoint is a ministry through um, what Chuck Colson started many years ago with, with Prison Fellowship. It's, it's similar and, and they do worldview stuff. Actually, one of the former uh, presidents of Cedarville University, where I went to school for my undergrad works um, there with the Colson Fellows Program, and they've got some amazing worldview resources for you to read and engage with. And actually, a couple weeks ago, um they had an interview here in Holland, Michigan with Alexandria DeSanctis, who's a a well-spoken advocate for life in our world today. And that was actually just in downtown Holland here. It was a partnership with Focus on the Family. And so if you go to Breakpoint's website, you can search for Alexandria DeSanctis. You can find a recent Q&A that she did. um, And she actually even discusses Prop 3 in Michigan and some of the things that it leads to if there were to be a yes vote in our state for that. Finally, uh, Focus on the Family often has great... great stuff. I encourage you to go there, but I encourage you to read the bill. I encourage you to be well-informed, and I would would encourage you to vote no on that because of the Bible's stance on life, because of God's value for life. That's not the only thing I want to urge you to do, though. Um, We have an incredible team within our church called the Life Team, Um, The Life Team has a mission to acknowledge the value of human life from conception to natural end by compassionately coming alongside women and men who are facing pregnancy decisions or who have had an abortion. These are people who love people and want to not just vote and not just pray, but want to walk alongside people faced with decisions and faced with the ramifications of decisions and all that kind of thing to be a loving presence of Jesus in their life. They're awesome people. And if you or someone you know and love is engaging with that decision or has made that decision, let us walk with you. Um, this includes men, this includes women. We have people who are specially trained to walk next to people faced in these situations. Their vision is to see that no one be left alone when trying to make pregnancy decisions or when coping with the after effects of abortion. Our team is, our hope is to be, al- our hope is to be allowed to sit beside them and offer confidential help and assistance. That's what we want to do. We, we want to be the hands and the feet of Jesus in the community where this touches many. And I recognize that. We want to love you because God's grace extends to us all. God's grace is there for you today. And we want to walk with you in that journey as we engage with these things on a cultural level, of course, but even more on a practical level as people of God serving and living in the world God has called us to live. So let's pray, and then we will open up the scriptures for today. Our Father, we thank you uh, for the privilege we have to gather this morning. And God, even now, we pray for the hearts of people in our nation. We pray, God, that we would be people who stand for what is right and for what is true, And that we would do so in the most peaceable and the most godly ways. Thank you, God, that you've given us this moment and time in which to live. Thank you for the lives that you have given us to affect with the truth of your word and with the hope of the gospel. And Lord, I pray that you would capture our hearts once again today. That our lives would look more like Jesus as a result of our time together and our time, most importantly, with you as a church family. Help us to walk into this week and to confidently walk in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Together we say, amen. Revelation 14. So we are on a journey studying through the book of Revelation And Revelation is a a decently long book. We've actually been in this process of going through Daniel and Revelation. And we are in Revelation 14 this morning. Let me get there. Last time, Pastor Tom went through like two and a half chapters and just gave incredible summations of here's what's going on in the text, and today we're going to slow it down and just look at one chapter together. Our goal is to finish this around near the first of the year. Um, But it's been an incredible journey of reading. The way John puts it is this way. In in Revelation chapter 1, the Lord tells John, I want you to write the things which are— the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which are to come. And so we looked at the things that he's seen. we looked at the things which are, which are the letters to the seven churches, the present day of what John is encountering. And he says, the things that are which to come. And those are the chapters we're in right now. These are things that pertain to the future. Some days it looks like that future is getting closer and closer and closer. And I mean, it is getting closer. But sometimes we look at the world and we go, oh my goodness. There is so much darkness, but this foretells a time, a a time of God's judgment coming upon the world for sin and God's mercy being extended um, in a way, um, especially the judgment part, in a way that has never yet been seen in the world. In fact, Jesus says um, those days would only be cut short for the sake of the elect. And so we've been reading through the book of Revelation together. And I want to ask you to stand with me as we read to this morning from Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14 says this, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who, had, who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midheaven, having an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who inhabit the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. And another angel, a second one followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her sexual immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, and he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his rage. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the sanctuary, crying out with a loud voice to him who sits on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sits on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the sanctuary, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has authority over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, "'Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe.'" So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Father, would you help us understand these words, what they mean, and how we walk in light of your truth today? Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Go beyond any words I can say. Bring clarity of the written word that we may walk more closely with the living word, Jesus, our Messiah, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So I'll be honest with you. This is a hard passage. (laughs) This is a hard passage for me, and as I was digging into it this week, I went, Here we go. Um, So we're going to work with a couple of different scenarios. Um, If you remember from when Pastor Tom walked us through uh, things a few weeks ago, we learned that in chapter 12, we're introduced to important characters of the period. And in chapter 13, we're introduced to two beasts, which are evil rulers of this tribulation period. Today, we're going to be looking at what we might just say is the ultimate the ultimate triumph of Christ that's maybe the simple way to put it but it's the ultimate triumph of Christ with this storyline going on there's essentially two groups there's people who follow the lamb and there's people who follow the beast and there's no middle road there's no middle road. It's kind of like when you come up to a um, a country road and you're faced with, do I go this way or do I go this way? It would generally be foolish to go straight because you'd probably go into a mailbox or a tree or something like that. You take the road. You go this way, or you go this way. And we're going to look at two different groups today. And the question is, is where do they go? especially during this time. So we're introduced to, or reintroduced, I should say, um, to the 144,000 here. And we met them back in Revelation chapter seven. And it says this in verse one, I looked and behold the lamb, meaning the Messiah, Jesus, is standing on Mount Zion and he has with him 144,000. Now there are some people that think this is a different 144,000 than the ones that we already talked about Um, because the definite article, the 144,000 is not there. I think it's simplest to just say in the book of Revelation we see a group of 144,000 and they seem to be consistent with the same group. They're people that we learned from in, in Revelation 7, they're people from the tribes of Israel. It says there's 12,000 from this tribe and 12,000 from this tribe and 12, tribe and 12 we read it like it's 12,000 from the tribe of Asher and 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben and 12,000 from the these are Jewish Evangelist that God seals for himself before the seal judgments. In other words, he puts his protective mark on them so that as the seven-year tribulation undergoes and, and begins to go through things, they are protected from all the things that they're going to experience in the world. Famine, disease, even hardship from without. They're not going to experience the utter... Um, Destruction that happens through the seal judgments, through the trumpet judgments, and then through the bowl judgments. Because they have a mission to proclaim the Messiah Jesus to the Jewish people and to Gentiles during the time of the tribulation. That's the 144,000, put simply. And we're introduced here to a picture where the Lamb, the Messiah Jesus, is standing on Mount Zion, and he has these people with him. And in fact, later it's going to say, they follow him wherever he goes. Um, This picture of the reign of Christ, there is oftentimes, when it uses Mount Zion, it typically refers to Mount Zion here on earth, meaning Jerusalem, the mountain in Jerusalem where the temple is at. There's one instance that is very specific in the book of Hebrews where it says, Mount Zion, that is the heavenly one. And so there is a heavenly Mount Zion, there is an earthly Mount Zion. What I think is in view here is the Messiah Jesus' Is standing on Mount Zion at the end of the tribulation with the coming of the Son of Man, because we're going to look at that at the later part of this chapter. And he has come, and he has come to begin the judgment and the reaping process. And these 144,000 people who have been with him, who have been faithful to him during this time of the tribulation on earth, they're with him, and there are people who follow him where he goes. One of the areas... And it talks about what is called a millennial reign of Christ is um, Micah chapter four. And I'm just going to summarize a couple of verses. I encourage you to go back and read the whole section sometime. It says this, in the last days, in the last days, this is talking about the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. People will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, He will teach us about his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Verse 6 says, on that day, in other words, in the last days, and he's focusing out a certain day in that time, this is the Lord's declaration. I will assemble the lame and gather the scattered, those whom I have injured. I will make the lame into a remnant, those far removed into a strong nation. Then the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time on and forever. So when the Messiah Jesus sets his feet back on Mount Zion, he is there to rule and to reign from that time on and forever. So I think what's going on here is this is talking about the Messiah Jesus coming at the end of the tribulation, and he is there to rule and to reign He is coming back and he's coming back to judge and he's coming back to deal with the righteous and to deal with the wicked who were on earth at that time. And the 144,000 come and they join him on the mountain and they follow him wherever he goes. That's what I think is going on. But then we're introduced to a couple of unique things. what says here is that there's a song that is being sung and and there's kind of a, a mixture of something coming down from heaven while there's 144,000 in the Lamb on Mount Zion and they're singing a song. The 144,000 are being taught this song. It says no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. And in scripture, we find um, several different unique songs in the book of Revelation. For example, in chapter five, we we read that there was a song of living creatures and of the elders, and that was a unique song to them. In Revelation 14, there's a song of 144,000 people purchased from the earth. Earth. Um, and then in Revelation 15, which we'll look at God willing next week, there's a song of those who have overcome. And it actually says it's the song of Moses, which comes from Exodus chapter 15. It's amazing song of praise because of the, the, the deliverance of God. But these 144,000 Jewish witnesses whom God seals at the beginning of um, his outpouring wrath, they're purchased Um, the scripture says, they're purchased by God. The word purchase here is the word in Greek, agorazo. Can you say that? Agorazo. Yeah. One more time, just for fun. Agorazo. It's translated purchase, and it means this. It means to secure rights by paying a price. It says the lamb has purchased them. He's purchased them. He secured the rights to their life because he paid a price. And that price was his own life. He purchased them. Why did he purchase them? He purchased them um, from the earth. And in in Revelation chapter five, it says he purchased them for God with his blood. He purchased to give them life. He purchased to give them freedom. He purchased to redeem them from sin and death and darkness and despair. And notice how it describes these hundred and forty-four thousand. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now, there's some people who think that this is a literal, like these are these are men who are celibate. There are some scholars who think that. I think what's going on here though is that many times in the scripture, this idea of purity in a sexual in a sexual um, context, for Israel in particular, is used to talk about their fidelity or their relationship with God. God many times will say, don't go um, being a harlot after other things. Come and be in covenant relationship with me, your God. So I think what's going on here, and here's the other reason why I think that. He gives this description of of not being defiled by women, or with women, for their virgins. He says, these are the ones who follow the Lamb. And so he's describing what the character of their life looks like, of not defiling themselves with women, or being virgins. It it has to do with fidelity. It has to do with following the Lamb, walking as a disciple, is that that word follow there, wherever he goes. They've been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the lamb. No lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. In other words, he's referring to the character of their walk. They were faithful, and they they weren't faithful in their own strength. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. It's this pattern of discipleship. Like the disciples lived their life for three years following after Jesus because they didn't want to know just what he knew. They wanted to be who he was, and the best way to do that is for them to go, Jesus, I don't understand why you just did that back there. Would you help me understand? As they often ask questions. And so they're following the lamb, they're patterning their life after the one who had purchased them with his blood. This mark of discipleship describes these 144,000. No lie was found in their mouth. If you want to on your own time, you can go back and look at Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 13. It talks about a a remnant of of final restoration of, of Israel. Kind of an interesting parallel there with this phrase, no lie was found in their mouth. And he says, these people are blameless. Now, these people are not blameless because they did everything right, right? These aren't people who had been sinless. These are not people who had somehow merited what they did. They were people who were found blameless because they were found in their Messiah. They'd come to a point where they knew They knew that they were sinners and that they needed a savior and that God, in his grace, redeemed them. He redeemed them. This idea of the word blameless, another place where this word blameless is found is in Colossians chapter one, where Paul is talking to the small house church of about 45 people in the small town of Colossae in Asia Minor. And he says, once you, he tells them, you were alienated, you were hostile. In your minds is expressed in your evil actions. But now he, meaning Jesus, has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, false, and, same word, blameless before him. These 144,000 are not blameless because they were perfect. They're blameless because they came to the one who was. And they said, would you create in me a clean heart, O God? Would you renew a right spirit within me? God, actually, they said, would you give me your spirit? And they exchanged their old way of living of self-dependency, trying to merit things on their own, and they said, "God, I can't merit things on my own. But you've given me grace through your son Jesus. I believe that you died and you rose again, and in you I have life." When it says these people were blameless, it means they went to the one who imparted his life to them. Picture of people when faced with a decision, do we go this way or do we go this way?" they said, "We will worship the Lamb. we will worship the Lamb and I think that 's what they 're doing as they 're learning this new song that 's unique to them because think about them one hundred and forty four thousand people who live through the great tribulation who see i 'm um, trying to remember the order I think the first the first series of uh, of judgments and, and ultimately kills a quarter of the world's population. The next trumpet judgments that we studied a couple weeks ago, I think it kills a third of the remaining world's population. We're going to come to the vile judgments or the, the bold judgments um, next week, and it's going to do a number on the rest of it. These are people who have seen the horrors of sin, and they've seen the just wrath of God poured out on sin God has spared them during this time for a purpose. And I think that gives them a certain song to sing that they uniquely understand. It's kind of like if, if you've lost someone near and dear to you and you've worshiped God in that, in that struggle, and in that midst, you have a unique song to sing of praise to God. If you have gone through public humiliation or disgrace, you have a certain song to sing before God. Every one of our lives, though there are things that are similar, we are, all un- we are all uniquely different. We all have a unique song to sing. I think that's why Paul says in Colossians, I want you to sing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making music in your hearts to the Lord. Because as we sing to one another, we actually encourage one another in God's faithfulness in our life. And here, my friends, is what it looks like. We we encourage one another by saying, you know, God has led me through this valley. Let me encourage you. He will be faithful to you because he was faithful to me. These are 144,000 people purchased from among men as first fruits to God. Verse 4 says they follow God wherever he goes. And this idea of first fruits is a first fruit in the Jewish framework, is the first portion of something offered to the Lord. So this is harvest season. You may have seen a lot of um, uh, tractors out there harvesting grain, harvesting corn, harvesting wheat. I hope I got all the seasons right. I probably didn't. Uh, soybeans, maybe. We, we were out on a... On a um, on a tractor ride a couple, about a week ago, and we saw, tra- uh, we saw farmers pulling in the remainder of their crops still at like nine o'clock at night. It was really kind of cool to watch, or maybe it was eight o'clock at night. It was dark, whatever it was. By the way, next week is um, Turn Back Your Clock Sunday. I don't know why that popped into my head, but it did. Um, anyways, we're back on a farm. Yes, and we're watching everything come in. In the Jewish framework, here's what they would do. Um, they would take the very first of what God had given them, His faithfulness to bring water and to bring sun and all these things. and They would say, God, this very first crop is yours. Now, the truth of the matter is all of it was God's, but they set aside that first part because they wanted to, number one, because God told them to as Jewish people, but they wanted to set aside that to be reminded we don't live by our own strength. We live because of the grace and the mercy of God in our life. This first fruits looks to a a beginning part of people during the tribulation time who are set apart for God, who come to faith in the tribulation because the tribulation is not just the wrath of God being poured out for sin. It's a time in which God will continue to draw people to himself. He'll continue to do this during this time. And that's actually what he says here in the next verse. If we go and we look at the beginning of the three angels' messages, verse six says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midheaven, having an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who inhabit the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. Here we have the first of three angels going about and he's proclaiming the gospel. Every person will hear every person will know, here is the gospel of God. And the gospel of God is, is not, uh, th- there is the, I, I guess I may, might say it this way, there's the, there's the shortened gospel. We believe that Jesus died and rose again according to the scriptures to pay for our sin. But in that is also the promise of God's final judgment because that sets everything right. Jesus' death was for a purpose, to reconcile us back to him, to make us right in relationship back with him. But as he died, there's coming a day, as he died and he rose again, there's coming a day where he will set things right. Because what was broken back in the garden through mankind's sin will be one day settled forever. Sin will be no more. It's in the back of the book, right? Death, crying, pain will be no more because the former things will pass away. This time is a time where God brings a final judgment on all that is evil and all that is wicked because in his righteousness, that is necessary. And that's also a part of this message of the gospel. This is being proclaimed to a world bent on its own selfish pride. And there's people here, who scripture talks about, have received the mark of the beast. In other words, they have sworn allegiance to the beast, to the devil, to the adversary, to Satan. And this call from the first angel tells them to rightly direct their loyalty to their true creator. It's kind of like Psalm 8, O Lord, how, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This angel goes about proclaiming Worship the one who made you. Psalm 19 declares about how how even the creation cries out and calls them to worship the one who made them. Worship the one in heaven who made it, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And verse 7 says, because the hour of his judgment has come. Because the hour of his judgment have, has come, so this first angel is proclaiming this eternal gospel to all mankind. The second angel goes forth to proclaim a. Um, I, I gotta find it here. Oh, here's what he says. He says, "Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great." Now, now, when it says "Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great," we should take note because if it repeats something in Scripture, that's the the Hebrew, the Greek way of saying, "Pay attention." Like when it says that God is holy, 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 it's like going holy! exclamation mark, exclamation mark, all caps and all this kind of stuff. When it says fallen, fallen, the angels proclaiming, This will surely happen. Don't miss it. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Babylon. Here's an ancient photo of Babylon, actually from the ancient city of Babylon in Mesopotamia, um, the plain of Shinar and that area that we looked at back when we studied Daniel. Babylon in the scriptures going way back has to do with um, government power and economic power and religious power that stands opposed to God. In its most basic sense, that's what Babylon refers to. We see this, for example, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, where ancient Babylon was, one scholar puts it this way, the political and religious capital of a world empire, renowned for its luxury and its moral corruption. Now, when we read Babylon the Great there's four different ways that scholars understand this phrase. Um, The first one is this, that Babylon is symbolic for the evil machinations of men representing a world system in rebellion against God. That's one way of looking at Babylon the Great. Another way is that Babylon should be understood as the city on the Euphrates. And so some scholars think that actually at the end of the age, there will be a revived Babylon city that will stand in opposition to God, and that will come against the people of God. A third one is that Babylon stands for Rome, the great power of the Roman Empire. A fourth one, which is kind of a nuanced one, is that Babylon, like Rome, represents the powerful final kingdom of earth that rebels against God. When we look, well, in a couple of weeks, we will look at Revelation 17 and 18, where this phrase Babylon the Great is used uh, a couple times. And we'll get some more details there. And one of the details that we'll get there is that Babylon is referred to as one who is on seven mountains. I think of all four of these options, perhaps the best one to understand is that this has something to do with a Roman plus empire, because when we read 17, we're like, okay, you get this picture of hills, and that's, that's, that's picturesque of Rome. Using the same phrase, Babylon the Great, in the same book, it fits the context well. The other reason why I think it probably refers to something that comes from a Roman political and religious system is because in the ancient time when John would have been writing, um, Rome, or let, let me get it right here, uh, Babylon and its synonym, the Chaldeans, were used as ciphers for Rome in Jewish texts such as the Dead Sea Scrolls and other works. And later rabbis um, would also use that. So it seems to equate in the context best that, that when it talks about Babylon the Great has fallen, that there is somehow a revived Roman Empire that Daniel 7 also talks about. Uh, that, there's, that there's these, um, the, the, the fourth beast comes and then there's uh, extra kingdoms. We won't go back and revisit all that again. Go back and read Daniel chapter 7. But we're introduced to this one that is unlike others. And it seems to point forward, it seems to mesh with what is going on here is that there is... There is a political and a religious system that stands against God in all ways. And it says here, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Imagine you're a Christian in the first century. You're experiencing persecution at the hands of actual Rome. You don't know whether or not your neck is going to be next You don't know what kind of economic pressures might squeeze you in order to somehow say, don't worship the God who made you, worship the beast instead. Imagine you're faced with those questions and those challenges, and you hear these words. Prophetically speaking, at the end of the age, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, there is no power of economic force. There is no power of might or strength that comes through a nation that will ever ultimately stand against the Lamb. Ever. And for the people of God, that is meant as encouragement. Because even as they're called to be faithful, even as there are martyrs from every nation and tribe and tongue that die for the cause of Christ in the tribulation period. Revelation 7, in the last part, talks about that. It says, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, even as they have gone to give their life for everything that they held dear. Jesus himself. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And they've got a song to sing, too. They've got a song that says... Worthy are you, our Lord, our God. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. What an incredible reminder in the midst of all that we face that God wins in the end. The third angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, Verse 10, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his rage and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night those who worship the beast in his image and whoever received the mark of his name. So we've gone from talking about 144,000 people sealed by God, redeemed by his blood, now talking to uh, a group of people who have stayed in their own rebellion against God. And it says that there is judgment coming for these people. And the temptation here is not just, what did you do with your life? It's, who did you worship? What was the, what, what was the center of who you are? D- d- did you worship? And this word for worship here that's used when it says, if anyone worships the beast is a a word that is used by Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. You may know the story. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is being tempted by the adversary himself. And it says, again, the devil took him to a very high, high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to them, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. So what the devil wants is all worship to be directed towards him. That's been his game all along to be God. It's always the game of the adversary to impersonate the one true and living God. But what Jesus says to him is this. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13 here, worship, same word, the Lord your God And serve him only. We're contrasted here with people who worship the beast. And it says in verse 10, um, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. The the way you could understand this, um, the drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength. To be mixed in full strength means to be properly prepared. So if they were mixing a wine, they would properly prepare it. So that was what it was supposed to be. Not only was it properly prepared, but it's mixed in full strength. And so when it comes to talking about the judgment of the Lamb against those who have chosen to worship the beast, the picture is this. The wrath of God is properly prepared and it's not diluted. It's not. And even as I say that, we we go, oh, Part of us weeps for people who do not have life in Christ because this is something they will experience. It says it will happen forever and ever. And yet, as people of God who look out and we see all the horrors, we see the horrors of sexual abuse and we see the horrors of violence and we see the horrors of people making names for themselves to the detriment of everyone else around them. We say, God, is there no justice? And God says, there will be justice and it will be properly prepared and it will be undiluted at that time. But in the middle of all this, There is no middle innocent bystander. In God's economy, we either receive God's merciful love through Christ Jesus, or we worship and align ourselves with the beast. The two paths offered to us. He calls in verse 12 here Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith. In Jesus. And this idea of perseverance can look like a runner, a a runner who is called to steadfastness, a, a runner who's called to hopeful endurance. In fact, the word perseverance could be translated steadfastness or hopeful endurance. It refers to the capacity to hold out or to bear up in the face of difficulty. God's giving this word to people living in our time and people who will be living in the tribulation time who are followers of Jesus tribulation saints. He says, keep going. Your hope is sure. Keep going. I haven't forgotten you. Keep going. I will keep my word. We're given this picture then in the next couple verses here. In verse 14 and following, it says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like the Son of Man. This is Daniel language, all right? Um, Daniel 7 talks about the coming of the Son of Man, and that there's the Ancient of Days who sits on his throne, and then the coming of the Son of Man comes, talking about the Father, the Ancient of Days, and the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus, who refers to himself in Matthew's gospel as the Son of Man. And here he is coming to rule and to reign in judgment having a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And we're introduced to a couple more angels because why not? Let's add more angels to the party. And another angel came out of the sanctuary crying with a loud voice to him who sits on the cloud, put your in your put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And so we're introduced to what is a grain harvest here. Um, The sickle is swung over the earth and it's reaped by the son of man himself. Then there's another angel uh, who comes out of the sanctuary of God, which is in heaven. And he also has a sharp sickle. Verse 18, there's another angel who says to the other angel, it's now time to reap. And he says, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of vine from the earth, because her grapes are ripe, and so there's two different reaping's going on here. The first one seems to have to do with grain. The second one seems to have to do with grapes, and actually, um, that's the way it's it's phrased there. Um, harvesting. Um, of the clusters or gathering of the clusters is specific to harvesting grapes in their prime, and so there's there's two different harvests here. And I was thinking this week, why are there two different harvests here, and why do I need to know that? Like, why do I need to know that there's a Son of Man who comes down with a sickle and he's going to reap the first part, and yet there's an angel who's going to reap the second part? Here's a couple of the differences that I think help us understand these two different harvests. There's a final harvest time coming to everyone who is on earth at this time. And there's a wreath and a sickle. And the term son of man is Daniel's way and John's way of saying, Jesus himself is going to come and he is going to reap those who are his. Because in contrast between the wheat and the grapes, notice what it says about the grapes. They're reaped by one of the angels and they are, um, they're gathered in and they're thrown into the great wine press of the wrath of God. So here we even have a picture at the end of the age of people who are on the earth at that time who are reaped according to whom they worshipped. Whether or not they worshipped the image of the beast or whether or not they worshipped the one who made them, who purchased them with his blood. It's, it's interesting. I don't know how your translation reads it, but the word ripe in verse 15 means to become drier withered, that last, that last word of the phrase uh, at the end of the verse. But in verse 18, It's this grapes in their prime. And so the angel swings his sickle, he gathers them, and we have these two different harvests going on. And if you go back and you read Daniel chapter 7, there seems to be some parallels with different things going on at the end of the age here as well. I think that's the the right reference, Daniel chapter 7, for you to go back and read. But what we see in the second harvest is that the grapes, figuratively, are pressed They're thrown into the wrath of God and that the blood extends 1600 stadia, which is approximately 184 miles, which is longer than the distance between the Dead Sea at the bottom of your screen and the Red Sea up at the top. Here's a picture of the Jordan River. And if you start at this point, beyond what you can see right there is a picture of the distance that scripture is saying, this is filled with blood of the people who have sought to worship the beast and to make names for themselves. So what's the point of all of this? (laughs) Right? We've dealt with a lot of things in about 45 minutes. Thanks for your patience. (laughs) Here's one of the points. The same scripture that assures all Christians of the love and grace of God extended to those who trust in Christ is unequivocal in its statements of judgment upon evil. Both of these things come hand in hand. And yet, even as we read about these two different things that happen to two different groups of people at the end of the age, people who either worship the Lord or they worship the beast, people who have the mark of God on their forehead or people who have the mark of the beast on their forehead, people who receive all the hardship that the tribulation brings or people who, who dwell and they revel in the things that the tribulation brings because they're of the beast. The message is clear. There's two paths. Which one will we pursue? Now, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, Scripture says that you are made new in Christ. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again for your sin, Scripture says that nothing will ever take you out of the Father's hand. John chapter 10. There's a promise and a hope that our future is secure. But for people in our world, the invitation is this. You can worship two things. You can worship the beast or you can worship the Lord. And the call is to find life in the Lord. And I find it absolutely amazing that even during this tribulation period, where God is faithful to keep his promises, God still proclaims and has angels proclaim and has 144,000 Jewish witnesses proclaim and has other tribulation saints proclaim, you too can turn from worshiping the beast and turn and serve the God of heaven and earth who created you, who made you, and guess what? Wants to have a relationship with you. This is the great hope of the gospel. Romans chapter five says, when we were still sinners, right? This isn't when we were good. This wasn't when we had all things put together. This isn't when we were like, yeah, I'm doing pretty good right now. When we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Me and me and you, me and you. What amazing hope. And that's the message we've been given to share in a world that seems to continually go down the way of the path of worshiping the beast, the economic beast, the religious beast, all those things that stand in opposition to God. All people who are separated from God are calling friends, to proclaim. You can worship the one who made you, who knows you, and who wants to redeem your life through his blood. While we wait and we say, God, thank you, as you extend love and grace, you also do what is right and what is just. The heavy message of Revelation chapter 14. I don't know where you are at in your relationship with God this morning. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I would love to say to you, follow the Lord. Worship the, worship the one who made you. Worship the one who sent his son to redeem your life and my life. Find life in his name. Become new in Christ today. Because that's where your true identity will be satisfied. That's where you and who God made you to be will actually flourish. It's where you will find peace. It's where you'll find joy. It's where you'll find purpose for your life in Jesus, and in no place else. No place else. Would you pray with me, please? Lord God, what challenging words to read, to read of coming judgment, and yet, God, in those we find the hope that Babylon, all the things set against you, God, will fall one day. They will fall in every possible way. And yet God even as we walk in a world still tainted and marred by sin we have the hope of the resurrection we have the hope of new life here and now we have the promise of your spirit who lives inside of us who can ca- who causes us who causes us to walk in your truth who causes us and empowers us to live not by the lies of this world but to live by the words of our faithful, faithful Redeemer. God, we pray for the brokenness in our world. And as we enter into it this week, I pray that you would help us to walk faithfully in proclaiming the good news of Jesus. God, I pray that you would enable us. Thank you for enabling us by your Spirit to walk as your disciples. Lord, may we hit pause on all the messages the world brings our way this week, that we may hear the still small voice of, of our Father, that we may walk in relationship with you, a dynamic relationship with you for the glory of Christ and for the saving of people lost in their sin. Thank you, God, for redeeming us from our sin. May we never, may we never lose the wonder of your grace in our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at FBCZealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.